those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's Pentecost Sunday, the day we're still on. They devoted this 3,000 now, not the 120 we're talking about now, but the 3,000 plus the 120. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship or communion, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And I'm changing the translation a little bit to be a little bit more literal to what it, to what it says in the Greek. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, meaning the people outside the church, not the 3,000, but the other tens of thousands who lived in Jerusalem. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So that comes to the end of this Pentecost Sunday account, and then it jumps, next chapter jumps ahead. So I want to say this right here at the beginning, and then I have four things I want to tell you. Something that um, I've said, I've sort of, I've said this before, but I want to make it very clear because this account can sometimes be used this way, so I want to warn us a little bit. We are not supposed to imitate everything we see in Acts chapter 2 or anywhere in the book of Acts. You're not, the book of Acts is not a blueprint that you, you see what they're doing and you do the same. You, you see all the deep, they did it this way, they did this, do it exactly the same as they did. Um... It's a historical account of what happened. This is the way they did it. They did it right. They did something good, but, it's, but we're not, not everything, every detail has the weight of a commandment from God, thus saith the Lord, do it this way. In other words, we verify details of the book of Acts. What is, what is, what is prescriptive for us? What, what should we do? This is descriptive. This is describing what happened, and it was God's will. You know, most of it, there was sin too, of course, but this was this is the way God did it at this time. But it's not saying if you could go, you, you need to re uh, and you need to redo it the way they did it. If you could reproduce it exactly the way they did it, then you'd have a real church or a good church or a top quality church. Instead, you look for what are the things in there that echo commandments in the epistles and in the gospels, and say, oh, you see right here where they're obeying Jesus or they're obeying the apostles. And so, that's, and so the apostles said to do this, and Jesus said to do this, and so we need to do it too. And, and those things, we are things that we need to imitate. They're usually much more general, but the specifics, the real specific, and I'll, and I'll explain this as I go along, but the real specific details are not that we have to do it exactly the way they did it. We can learn things from them. There might be things that challenge us, and we say, you know, that's interesting. They did it that way. Maybe we should think about uh, that there's, our way is, 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 could, could be better or something. You know, we can obviously, we can learn. But we're talking about now is what, of, what in here is saying this, thus saith the Lord, this is what you must do if you're a church, if you're a Christian. This is the, what you must do. So we want to we differentiate between the two um, 
but still learn from this. And, and there's much in here that is, that is uh, echoing what Jesus said or what the apostles said. So there are commandments that are here, not as commandments, but as examples, models for us, models of commandments, okay? Um, so if we think something, in other words, if, if you're reading a narrative, if you're reading a story in the Bible, and you think something in there is a model for you, you should try to verify it, that that's a model for you, by finding the commandment in the Bible that actually tells believers to do that, okay? Um, because if there is not a commandment that actually says to do that, and you're getting that from a narrative, you're sort of on shaky ground there. Because it doesn't mean just because someone did it one time that you need to imitate that and do it the exact same way, Okay? Um, of course, they are models to us, but they're models to us of faith and of obedience and all of that. But we need to make sure that we're not falsely. What we don't want to do is we don't want to put things on ourselves or on the church in general that just isn't what God expects, is not what God's really telling us that we must do. Um, so we need to think about that. We need to wrestle with that and ponder that as we go through. And you'll see that as we, as we go through what, what I'm talking about. Uh, it might become a little bit clear. If it's not clear right now, hopefully as we work through, it'll become a little bit clear. Um, uh, so I've got four points tonight, Learn uh, four verbs, and this is my four verbs for tonight. Learn, love, worship, and witness. I tried to do alliteration, and I just, I got half of it one letter and half of it the other letter. That's all I came up with. Actually, it was, it was, it was actually completely coincidental. I didn't uh, do it on purpose. But I came up with learn, love, worship, and witness. And I didn't really come up with this. I think this originates with John Stott or, or some other really great preacher. Uh, learn, love, and uh, worship, and witness, okay? So we see those four things in these, uh, these seven verses, uh, 41 through 47. So I want to talk about learn. And, and so I'm saying, what are the four things that the church was doing? They were learning, they were loving, they were worshiping, and they were witnessing, okay? So first of all, learning. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they had these 12 apostles. These 12 apostles were teaching them and giving them instruction. And, um, and, it's, uh, uh, and this was something that was regularly going on, and they were devoted to it. They had, they had just come into the church, right? They just believed that Jesus was Lord, and now they needed a lot of instruction. They needed a lot of teaching. And the apostles, like we've seen so far, when Peter preached, he preached from the Old Testament. So the apostles would have given them direct messages of what Jesus had said. They would have told them things that Jesus had told them. They would have told them stories about Jesus. So they understood the whole account of, of what Jesus had done and what he'd accomplished. They would, but they would also would have preached from the Old Testament and said, this psalm in the Old Testament means this. This passage in, the, in Moses means this. And because Jesus did that to them too. We're told that in those 40 days, Jesus would taught them from the Old Testament, from the Bible, and explain to them how so much of the Old Testament was pointing to him. And that he showed that to them again and again and again. So they would have now been passing on all this rich teaching they'd received. Uh, they'd been, they would have been passing it on now to, to these 3,100 people. And how they did that and how they organized it and did it all, we're, we're not exactly sure. We are told... Um, uh, in 542, you don't need to turn there, but Acts 542, we're told day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, the apostles never stopped teaching 
and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So they were still preaching to the crowds, Jesus is the Messiah, but they were also teaching to the Christians who had already been baptized, further teaching as well. And it says they were doing it in the temple courts and from house to house. So temple courts, if you don't know about this, you know, we saw the temple this morning in in Matthew chapter 4. But the temple courts was a massive space, like a massive thing, um, uh, much bigger than, than most churches. The only thing that would compare would be like some kind of just massive mega church with just enormous rooms. Um, it could hold thousands and thousands of people. And so it sounds like they did some of their teaching in the temple itself, and they, didn't, they, didn't, they weren't in trouble yet. They weren't getting arrested yet, so they were teaching the people at some point somewhere in the, one of the courts uh, where people could gather around. And if you don't know this, it is possible for someone to, sh- to preach loudly or to, to talk loudly and um, if people crowd in for thousands of people to be able to hear you, uh, it is possible if you, if you have a loud enough voice and you can project. Um, that's definitely happened uh, in, in history. So they would, they would be there, and they would also, but they would also go uh, house to house, you know, go into people's homes and talk to people, maybe gather a few families from the neighborhood, the, the, the street that they lived on. Maybe there were three Christians on that street. Three Christian families would get together, and the apostles would come by and give them some further teaching on what they needed to know uh, about Jesus that they didn't know yet, you know, continue to instruct them. Um, Verse 43 says, everyone was filled with awe, and that seems to mean the the people in the church, but also the people outside the church were sort of in awe of something is happening. They didn't know what to make of it. They hadn't believed themselves yet, but they were in awe. You know, they were, they were, that's not always necessarily a positive thing. It could be a fearful thing, like they're they're almost afraid. There's something really powerful happening in Jerusalem among these people, and I don't really understand it, and it's, 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 it's almost unnerving. I'm in awe of it. God's doing something, or something's happening, and I don't know what's happening, and this is what it was. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. So these 12 men, Jesus was trying to, Jesus was, um, was showing to the world, showing to Jerusalem these are my 12 men. They've claimed to be my 12 men. You know that they were the 12 men who were with me when I lived. People knew who Jesus was. They knew who had been his partners, who had been with him. These 12 men had been with me, and now I'm confirming as well to Jerusalem, laying the foundation of the church, that these are the 12 men that they're doing the same kind of miracles Jesus did, amazing things they're doing. And it's a sign to the people. It's a sign to everyone these wonders and signs are telling people, yes, these are the one, the messengers from Jesus. These are the 12 messengers from Jesus. Like there were 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 apostles from Jesus, 12 messengers. They've got the word for the people. You need to get one of them to get the official word, to get the real word, to make sure you're getting the genuine article, to make sure you're getting the real truth. Uh, find one of these 12 guys, listen to him in the temple, invite him to your house. Maybe he'll come to your house and talk to you. Uh, but these 12 will give you, will give you the truth. But they were, they were verified by these wonders and signs. Now, here's an example of what I was saying earlier. That saying there that the apostles performed wonders and signs, that's not telling us, therefore you go forth and perform wonders and signs. It's not telling us that. Someone could, miracles happen, have happened in church history. People, miraculous things take place. I'm not discrediting that or saying there aren't miraculous things. I'm saying that verse isn't telling you, be an apostle, get out there and perform a wonder, perform a wonder or perform a sign. That's, that's not what it's saying. You ain't no apostle. And God could give you a power to do something in a moment. You could pray over someone and they'd be healed. Someone could not be able to walk and you pray over them and they can walk. That could happen. 
The Lord can do what the Lord wants to do. But it's not telling us, get out there and, and be an apostle. Be, a, uh, be someone who performing wonders and signs. That's what you can do. Okay, that's an example. It's not, it, it did happen in the early church, and God can do what God wants to do, but it's not, it's not a commandment on us that we need to perform wonders and signs. And if we're not performing in wonders and signs, it's a, it's a, sign, it's a, it's a sign that we're a weak church or we're a, we're a church that, has, that God's not with or God's not verifying, okay? Um, so learn. The verb here, my first verb is learn. We must learn. The, the, the one thing I want us to take away from this as a church, East Ridge Presbyterian Church, we're going to be a, a genuine church of God. We need to learn the apostolic doctrine, the doctrine of the apostles, what the apostles taught. Where you find it is in the New Testament, you find it in the New Testament, and then you interpret the Old Testament through what you find taught in the New Testament. And the, and the apostles give us a lot of examples of how to interpret the Old Testament. They don't interpret it all for us. We have to do a lot of that work. Um, but uh, they give us examples of how to interpret the Old Testament, and then we take that to the other parts of the Old Testament and apply the same, the same principles in the same ways of interpreting but in the New Testament is where we have the teaching of the apostles. That's where it's preserved for us. I talked about this on an earlier Sunday. Um, so um, as a church, I want you to think about how can how, I want each of you as an individual to ask yourself this, how can I improve in this? Maybe some of you are really good at this. Learning is just your forte. You, you do learn. You study, you read, you listen to sermons, you go to church whenever the doors open, you, you go to Bible studies, you study on your own. Maybe that's who you are. But for some of us, that may not be the case. So wherever you're at, how can I improve in this? How can I improve in being devoted to the apostles' teaching? Am I really still learning? Or have I let that slip and I've let learning become not a real big part of my life anymore? I'm not really still trying to learn God's Word. There's always more to learn. I learn things every single week. And, you know, I went to seminary, been doing this for 18 years, and I'm still learning things every, every single week. Um, I'm like, oh, wow, you know, learn, learning new things again and again and again, having old things that I thought I knew come to life. And like, oh, I thought I knew that, but I didn't. Now I really, I, or now I know it better. Um, so there's always things. So think about that for you. Some of you are academic. You're, you're more, uh, that's more, this is more your bent. Some of you are not. So it's where you're at. The Lord knows what your giftings are, what your skills are, but all of us can take steps forward wherever we're at and we can begin to learn more than we're at. Maybe we need to uh, uh, be involved in, in something else. Maybe there's something else. You need. I don't, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you, think about this. How can I learn uh, the apostles' doctrine? Is, and we need to also be very careful as a church. We need to all think it's important that what J.R. is preaching, what the elders are teaching, what other teachers we have are teaching is what the apostles actually said, okay? What the apostles actually taught. We need to um, because we, can, we, we could get off straight. Jared could say something one time that was not, that was not quite right. And, 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 I, and honestly, in the last, several, last few years, there have been times the elders have said, you said this, let's talk about it. We're not sure if that's really biblical. One elder or something might say this. Then we talk it through, and, and sometimes I'll say, yeah, I probably should have said it like this, or, or maybe that was, you know, and I try to adjust it for the next time I touch on that, or, or maybe even mention it, or whatever. But we need to, we need to take that as important. This is important. The leaders should be teaching apostolic doctrine. They should be teaching what, what the apostles actually taught. We must take that deadly seriously. But as a church, we must be learning, pu pushing in and learning. Um, our society is not really that good at continuing to learn, you know, after school. We're learners up to a certain point, then we've graduated, and then we don't need to learn anymore, right? 
So it's not something that is a, a real big part of society, it's continuing learning, going on and continuing to learn. But in the church, we should be learners. We should be people who continue to grow in our knowledge, grow in our, and knowledge doesn't mean just bare intellectualism. It means knowledge that has life in it, knowledge that has love in it, knowledge that has spirit in it, knowledge that has faith in it, knowledge that has hope in it, you know, knowledge filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Knowledge is not, knowledge can be dusty and dry, but it doesn't have to be. And so, and you'll be surprised how learning something can make your, your faith become fiercer and, and, and more zealous and more fired up than it, than it was before by learning new things. Um, so learning. Um, you know, in the church, there's a bad, there's a, we sort of have a bad practice in the church. This is not as much a guilt as a problem in Presbyterian circles, I understand. I know when I'm talking about learning in a Presbyterian church, I'm on very uh, safe ground. I mean, this is, this is what Presbyterians emphasize, right? Learning. Maybe, maybe we're to a fault on this. Maybe this is something we emphasize too much. But nevertheless, it's only my first point of four, so I got more to say. Um, but nevertheless, one last comment about learning is uh, there are churches that think like, you know, theology is not that important. Learning's not that important. We just got to give the people the basics and then just get them out there doing stuff and, and everything will fall. But the problem is, you need to keep learning because you're going to get off track uh, if, you, if you've only got a few things to work with, a skeleton to work with. Notice what happened in the early church. The apostles taught them, and they were devoted. That, that, the language there means they continued over and over regularly without stopping, learning, 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 learning from the apostles. And the apostles kept pouring out, pouring out, more for you to learn, more for you to learn. And they kept learning. So it was like a school, the school of Christ in Jerusalem. Someone, some, someone one time said uh, Jesus opened a school uh, in, in Jerusalem on Pentecost Sunday because he had a lot to teach people from with his apostles. So ask yourself, how can I improve in this? The second one is love. This comes from this next one. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. The fellowship or the communion is another way that's, that's translated a, a, a communion, people bonded together, closely together. And I'm using the verb here, love, because that's the idea here. It's, it's the idea of you have, a, you have a dedication to what are the apostles teaching me? My, those are the 12 leaders. What are they teaching me? But you also have a devotion. The church, these, these people had a devotion to the other people in the church, not just the apostles but they were, and their teaching, but they were devoted to the people around them as brothers and sisters attached to Jesus, baptized like them, Fellow Christians, fellow disciples, fellow believers, all these terms that they use, they didn't use Christian yet, but disciples, fellow believers, and they um, were bonded to, to one another, and they loved one another. So being devoted to the fellowship meant they were devoted to the people, the church, the other folks, the, the communion. They were, developed, they, they were devoted to uh, being in union with them and, and living in community with them. Now, what did that, mean, what did that look like for them? In, in everyday life. I don't see how they could have true, any one of them could have been truly devoted to all 3,000 people, you know, on the same level, the same, maybe in their heart, uh, you know, uh, principally, they were, I would do anything for any of these 3,000 people. They're devoted to them, but they don't know them all. There's no way they could, you know, we can only handle a few hundred people in our life, uh, most of us. I can't remember how big the monkey sphere is, but if anybody knows about the monkey sphere, there's, there's a theory about how many people you can actually handle in your life. Um, 
but, uh, but their homes, you know, and, and the temple, they would gather in these big groups, but their homes, um, you know, most people think that the homes there in Jerusalem, there's no way these homes, uh, except, for the, except for, obviously there were, there were exceptions. There was, there was at least one room that could hold 120 people because that happened, right? There were a few places that were really big, but the average home, most people's homes, are not going to be able to hold more than 20 30 would, be, 30 would be starting to really stretch it. 40 would just be packed wall to wall. So they were gathering in homes in smaller numbers, and they knew these people in this circle they were in. Maybe they knew the Christians on their street or on the, the few streets around. Remember, these people were living in Jerusalem. They knew, they knew the people close by, the people that they worked with. Most of their life took place in a small area um, where they worked and lived and where their family was. And so um, they were devoted to their fellow Christians. When they found out someone was a Christian, you know, they were devoted to, yes, you're, you're a brother, you're a sister. And as they saw people daily on a daily basis, they loved them and they, and they lived in a family relationship. And this is, this is something new, right? They had um, heard about Jesus, they believed in Jesus, and suddenly they have all these new relationships. You know, these are people that maybe they'd known him before, but he didn't mean much to them. He didn't mean much to him before. It was just somebody who lived on the, on the next street. But now it's a fellow Christian. Wow. And you go and see, say, hey, you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I do. Did you get baptized? I did. I got baptized. Okay. You know, I don't know. My name's, my name's John. My name's James. Because everybody was named John and James, apparently. And, 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 and you know, and, and so they got to know. And, they were, you know, and the women, my name's Mary, you know. Uh, they talked to each other, and they got to know each other, and they loved each other, and they built these relationships. So we must love Christians like family. We're called to love Christians like family. And that doesn't mean we don't want to be exclusive to Eastridge Presbyterian Church. Don't just, you know, hoard these are your people, and, and don't worry about the Christians out there. No, it's where, where you work, where you live, the, the life that you, the church that you go to, the, the, the different places that you are, the circles around you, the Christians in those circles are your brothers and sisters. Love them like family. Uh, some of them will be at East Ridge Press. Some of them will be at another church. Some of them will be Presbyterian. Some of them will be Methodists. Some of them will be, you know, something else. But they're, um, but they're, they're your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Love, love Christians. Um, notice that they, they had, uh, you know, probably pretty small gatherings other than the temple gathering, but they were no doubt, they were loving, you know, beyond just those, those smaller gatherings that they had, but they knew other people too, and they were, they were loving them. Um, and so ask yourself the question, who has God placed around you? What Christians has God placed around you in your ordinary life? Everybody has a response. Did these people, did these people quit their jobs and abandon their families? No, they still had kids, they still had spouses, they still had parents to take care of, they still had um, jobs to go to and jobs to work, long hours, six days a week. They still had all that. All that was still going on. It was just that they had these new, a wider circle of family now, intimate family, and, and these friendships that they hadn't had before. Um, and we must, we must love Christians like family. Um, who has God placed around you? Who is God prodding you? What's that Christian in your life maybe who keeps crossing your path that God is prodding you to to love, you know, to, to, to reach out to and to, 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 to uh, show concern for and, 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 be, and talk with and listen to and all the things that go with love. It's a big, it's a, love is a big, complicated thing. But treating them like you, giving them the kind of care and attention and importance that you would give to a family member, um, a brother or sister in the Lord. 
Um, so this, this new, these new bonds took place. They were all fellow Jews, but now a new kind of bond was taking place in Christ, in Jesus, baptized, brought them together, and made them uh, relate to each other. But it wasn't just that. It's not just, it's not just what I've described so far. It went deeper. Look at verse 44. This describes the love as well. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They were that doesn't mean the 3,000 moved into, you know, uh, some kind of uh, monastery or something. It's, it's not that kind of thing. It just means they were united. They were, they were one in spirit. They were one in mind. They, they were connected by their connection to Christ. They saw each other. They interacted with each other. They loved each other. Um, but it also says they held everything in common. Now, um, that does not mean, and, and most scholars, there's always some scholars who disagree with anything, but most scholars agree that if you study what's happening in the book of Acts and you study what's happening in the rest of the New Testament, this is not saying um, that private property was done away with and that no one owned anything anymore and everyone held anything and everyone held anything in common. Like you may have heard of, there have been religious groups that have said, hey, the 10 of us are just going to throw all of our stuff in a pot and we're going to live out of that pot, and, but, but none of us are going to own anything anymore. And of course, monks have done that kind of thing as well. But that's not what's being described here. That, that's not what's being, this, this sort of expression held everything in common was an expression that was even used in the Gentile world for people that were close friends uh, and could mean some, and meant th- something like, uh, those two are the best of friends. Every, they hold everything in common. They are, they, you know, what is, they, what is mine is yours. What is yours is mine. They, they share. They take care of each other. They look after each other. It, but it's not an abandonment of private property. We can tell that even in the book of Acts because they still have homes. They still have Barnabas is still selling property later. They're still, you know, they still have things to sell. Uh, instead, what it's talking about is that they were always looking out for who was needy. And that, the next verse explains this and gives it in a lot more detail what's, what's being described. Selling their possessions and goods... They gave to anyone as he had need. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. So the idea was that they were, it wasn't, obliga- it wasn't uh, an obligation. It wasn't like an organization that says, the church wasn't an organization that said, no more private property, sell everything you have. That's not what was going on here. It was, we're all together in this. There's poor people in the church. This person has a desperate need. I have this. I could sell it. And I could, I could pay for that for, for a few months. Okay, I'm going to sell it. I, you sell it, and you get the money. You come it. You say, okay, give it to the church. And the church, the apostles, take care of, uh, take care of this person for a while with some, some desperate need that they have. So because you were, another thing that was happening in the church was very wealthy people and, or people who had more than enough. They, maybe they weren't wealthy, but they had more than enough. And people who had almost nothing and some who had less than, you know, just had nothing at all. Destitute people were all now in the same church. So imagine if you, in your extended family, if you have like 30, 40 people in your extended family, imagine if, um, you know, half of, or half of them or a third of them were just destitute, and then a third of them were doing okay, pretty well off, you know. There, it probably wouldn't even happen in a family that there would be sharing on such a level that um, the poor in the family would be taken care of. It probably wouldn't even happen there, but that's what was happening in the church. There was they were taking care of the needy members of the church. The people who had extra were taking care of the needy members. And it was a different kind of culture than us, a different kind of society. In our society, you take money out of the bank and help. You don't, well, I'm going to go sell my 
this or sell. We, 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 we do have things to sell, but it doesn't work quite the same way as it did in their culture. Most of what people had in their culture was the stuff they had, the actual stuff they had. Uh, possessions was what you had, land and possessions, and that's what you could sell, and that's what they would sell to get money. They didn't go draw money out of a bank. To get money, to help someone needy, they sold something. And then so they depleted themselves. They made a sacrifice from their own total, you know, ownership, what they owned. They, they, they decreased some in order to help this person's real needs uh, in this situation. So this was another example of the kind of love that took place. When, when Jesus, when the Holy Spirit brought these people together, you know, the Holy Spirit's in charge of who's going to be in the church, right? The Holy Spirit's in charge of, you don't know who's going to be there. You don't know who's going to be your friend now. You don't know who's going to be your brother or sister in the Lord now. The Holy Spirit brings them in. And so suddenly, you know, you had these friends on your street, but now these other people are the, Christ, are, are the Christians. And so you become sort of drawn to them. You don't necessarily abandon your unbelieving friends, but you have these new friends and new brothers and sisters you didn't have before. And some of them, you might, be have, you might have more than, than the average person, but they, some of them are pretty poor. And so they have needs. And so you begin to say, hey, well, I'm going to help, you know, reach in your pocket and do what you can do uh, to help out. Um, so if we are not poor, this isn't saying that, you know, that people who have the needs are giving, but the people who have extra are giving. And you see the same teaching in the epistles, by the way. So, oh, by the way, so is this something we're supposed to practice? Yes, it's something we're supposed to practice. Maybe not exactly how they did it because of the cultural differences, but it's something we're supposed to practice. How can we verify that? Because, because both Jesus and the apostles told us to do this, right? Jesus himself, Jesus said in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, he said, sell your possessions and give alms. Jesus teaching. He wasn't, that's not when he's talking to the rich young ruler. That's when he was talking to the church or to, to Christians, to disciples. Sell your possessions and give alms. Now, uh, how does, you know, how is that applied? Well, we, how, how, how did the early church take that? Well, we see how they took it. This is exactly how they took it. It wasn't saying sell everything you have and own nothing and be like St. Francis, you know, sell it all, give it all away, and then wander the world barefooted. Um, uh, that's, 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 not, that's not what's being said. Instead, what's being said is uh, uh, when you see needs, be willing to sacrifice what you have for the needs of your fellow, for your fellow Christians. If we're not poor, we must make sacrifices. One of the ways we love is by making sacrifices for needy members. God brought them to the church. So this is God bringing this person to you and saying, hey, here's your sister. <laughs> hey, Holy Spirit saying to you, this is your brother. I brought your brother to you. And your brother has some issues. Your brother has some problems. Your brother has, is in some trouble. So church, family, family of God, work it out. Figure out what you can do for your brother. And how can we improve in this, you know, as a church? How can we improve in loving one another? How can we improve in helping the needy in our midst? We need to help the needy out there too, but we begin with the needy in our midst because it would be a disgrace. There's always going to be needy in the world, but, but what we're told is that there shouldn't be needy among us. So we need to start with that, getting rid of all the need in our church. The problem is it's embarrassing to have need, and in our society it's... Um, we struggle with this and struggle to talk about it and struggle to, to even admit when we have need. And so some people are very willing to admit, and, but others are not. And so we don't always do a good job of this, but this is something that we need to wrestle with and think about. Um, and, of course, we have the bad example from Nehemiah chapter 5 of what the people were doing at that time to, to reflect upon and then what Nehemiah told them to do and the command to give them. There's one other thing about love here 
which is verse 46. It says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Um, uh, so, they're, so they're eating. To, the, the Lord's Supper is probably in there as well, but we'll talk about that later. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So they were getting together to eat together. They were getting together in the temple. Um, and notice this is every day. It says every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So they're eating together in homes, and they're getting together in the temple um, we'll talk more about that, what that meant in the temple in a minute. But this isn't telling us, this isn't, now, here's my example. This isn't telling us all Christians should be eating together in each other's homes every day. That's not a command. That's not a command. But there's still something here that should pull at our hearts that, wow, they really wanted to be together. Wow, they really uh, uh, wanted to share their food with each other. They wanted to eat together. You know, uh, eating to get table fellowship was really important in their culture. It's important in our culture, too. Maybe not as important as it was in their culture. For two people to eat together was to say, we are friends. You know, we are family. We are, we, we if, you, if you would eat with someone, you were saying to them, you know, we, we're, I honor you and you honor me. And we're, 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 we're it's important that we're, it, it means something that we're eating together. So they would eat together in each, other, each other's homes daily. It was just, they were living in each other's lives. They were in each other's kitchens, in each other's, you know, in each other's uh, dining, dining areas, eating together, living together, having a lot of time together. Um, and this was part of their love. This was part of the way they loved each other, by spending this time eating, eating together uh, with glad and sincere hearts, being with each other. Um, there's not a commandment there, you must do it this way or do it this way, but of course there's a general sort of idea there that we need to be, that it's probably not uh, true to the New Testament church to show up at uh, 10.30 for worship, go home at noon for worship, and forget about Christians the rest of the week, you know, forget about your fellow Christians. No, that's quite, not quite it. Now, do we have to eat dinner together every single night? You've got to have someone over or be at someone else's house every single night. No. I mean, if that happens, wonderful, fantastic. If it can actually happen in, in, the, in the, where you live and, where, and the neighborhood you live in, maybe that could happen. And once again, it doesn't have to just be Eastridge Pres Christians, right? Christian's a Christian. There's not an Eastridge Pres Christian and, a, and, then a, and then a stinky other Christian. They're, they're all Christians, right? They're all, they're all for eating with and loving and, 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 and hanging out with and doing things with. Um, so one, let me ask you again, uh, how can I improve in this? How can I improve in this? Ask that to, for you, each one of his individuals. How can, I, how can I improve in loving fellow Christians? How can I do a, a better job at that? How can I do a better job helping the needy Christians? How can I do a better job spending time with Christians, eating with them, being with them, spending time with them? Um, some of us have to work long hours, and we have tough schedules, and it's just, not re, it's just not realistic to do as much as maybe somebody else can do. I understand that. The Lord understands that. He knows that. But, may, but, how, but that's why I sort of individualize it. How can I improve in this? What's, where I'm at in my life, maybe you're already there and you've got this down. But for most of us, probably there's some steps we need to take to, 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 to show more love to, and to love our, our fellow Christians more, to spend more time in their life, to spend more time with them, to see them more than just, than just uh, at worship. 
Speaking of worship, the third one is worship. So we had love, I'm sorry, we had learn, love, now we have worship. Um, and I still got a little bit of time, so I'm going to attempt worship here. Worship is pulling together several different things. Look back at 42 again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. We did those two. And then to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Now, I include both of those in worship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers, okay? To the breaking of bread. Not all scholars agree, but a lot of scholars believe, and I think they're right when I look at the other texts where this terminology is used, that that breaking of bread there is not just talking about any old meal, but is talking about the Lord's Supper. That this, is, this, was a, this was a technical term that the early church had for communion. It was one of the things that they called the Lord's Supper or, or what we call communion, the breaking of bread. Um, and so I think this is a reference to worshiping together. So the worshiping together that's being referred to is the breaking of bread, the prayers, the prayers. Why is it said that way? Instead of saying some of your translations, and maybe the NIV says this too, just say, and they were devoted to prayer. And that sort of sounds like, you know, they prayed. They were praying people, which is great, and they, they were praying people. But the way it's actually expressed, the prayers, was something, was the way you expressed getting together with other people to pray the Psalms. At certain times, set times, getting together with other people to pray the Psalms or to pray prayers that were set, uh, prayers that were already decided what they were going to, liturgical type things. Uh, they, the, the temple had a whole system of this. We, you'll even see later, as we keep going through, the, going through the book of Acts, that the apostles would go to the temple at the set times, and they would pray in the temple. They would say the prayers that other Jews were saying, the Psalms and other prayers at the set times um, of, of the day. There would be a prayer service in the temple, and they would go to those prayer services. So um, this could be, the prayers could be referring to just the prayer services in the temple, but it was probably referring to prayer, prayer times that they had in their homes together, the prayers, they did, they did psalms and prayers in their home, but also prayer services that, that were going on in the temple too. They were doing, we know they were doing both, going to the temple and spending time in each other's homes. So worship was, um, I mean, of course, worship included, uh, probably included, I don't know if they separated at this time, but I don't think they probably did, um, that included some, uh, there definitely would be scripture reading, but it, the apostles uh, may have explained what the scripture meant or something, um, whether they did extended teaching, I don't know what happened. This is, this is a very early stage, so things were you know, changing and developing as, as it went along. But, um, but certainly they were doing the Lord's Supper, and they were doing prayers. And then verse 47, another thing that's mentioned is, in their homes they were praising God, which is usually a term for you know, uh, you know, speaking, singing, chanting, uh, praises of God, that songs that were in Psalms that were already, that were already composed, uh, chanting these psalms of praise to God. Um, and so uh, worship was a big part of the early church. They were, they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. They were getting together to pray together. Um, they were getting together to praise God together. Some of this was happening in the temple. And imagine, imagine that it's, it's like these strange, we're in a church that's like a 200-seater church, um, and, but this was like the two extremes way far away. It's like imagine like a, you know, a church with, the, with room for thousands of people and a church with room for 30 people. It's like, these are the two places they were spending all their time. Now, is that telling us, and I've actually heard people say this, that's telling us that this is what the church should be. The church should be very, very small, 
but, they, but all those small churches should get together for massive services of thousands of people too, and they should do both. Both things should be happening according to Acts. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this is an example of things. That's not really, we're not commanded that you must have a big place and a little place, and you must, have, and you must be doing both. One place where there's thousands of people, one place where there's 25 or 30 people, and do both. We're not being commanded to do the, the, either one of those. It's just, this is just the way it was adapting, the way, the way it was developing, and what God was doing at that time when they still had a temple. They weren't going to have a temple for much longer, just a few more decades, and there would be no temple anymore. Um, so uh, we don't, and, and once again, this isn't telling us we have to meet every day like they were meeting every day for worship. Um, it's not telling us, uh, but it is telling us that the Lord's Supper is very important. It's telling us that praying together with God's people is very important, and this is part of worship, and praising God is very important, and it's part of worship. And this is something that this should be important to every Christian. Something that should be important to you is getting together with other Christians to praise God, pray to God with them, praise God with them, pray to God with them, and receive the Lord's Supper together with them as well. These are the, the elements of worship. And of course, teaching we already talked about, but teaching would be in there as well. Um, so these, uh, this is very important. It's important that we worship God in these ways. We, we receive, his, receive the communion, we pray together, and we, and we praise together. And all these things are part of what it means to be a worshiping church. Um, it doesn't mean we have to do it every day, like I said, but we do have a commandment that I mentioned a few weeks ago the fourth commandment, which is telling us we do have a day that we're supposed to worship, right? Uh, we, do have, we, we are supposed to worship on the Lord's day. We do have a command to worship on the Lord's day. Obviously, there are extreme circumstances where that can't happen, but ordinarily, we're commanded to worship on the Lord's day. Um, we do have to meet together to worship regularly. Now, you might, you might say, well, duh, obviously. It's not obvious. It's not obvious. Do you know how many people are out there who, who go by the name Christian and call themselves Christian, and worship is not a part of their life. They do not meet with a church anytime regularly. It's something like the, the latest stats on the United States of America is it's, it's under a quarter of Americans uh, go to church with any kind of regularity. Under a quarter of Americans go to church with any kind of regularity. Um, and so most people around us are, are, are uh, a man in Chattanooga, okay, maybe not most, but in Chattanooga, there's a lot of people going to church, obviously, but a lot of people are not, even though they go by the name Christian, and so it's not, this is something to, you, if you're here on evening service, you're probably pretty committed to worship, is my guess, so I'm, so I'm preaching to the choir here, but, um, but just remember that, how important it is, and, and don't, don't stray from that or lose that, that emphasis in your life or lose that that's so important to gather with the Lord's people on the Lord's day in worship, and if you can, on other days as well for worship, but if at least the minimum would be to gather on the Lord's day for worship. Um, we do see them worshiping every day. That's not a commandment, once again, that we have to worship every day. Um, how? Oh, another thing, another thing that I, I know something that I could mention with y'all that might be helpful is think about, think about when you... I'm not putting a guilt trip on anybody. I know people have jobs, health crises, reasons why they can't go to church. I understand that. I'm not, I'm not picking on you, okay? So, so, so all you hear me on that. But I do think that a lot of us, including me sometimes, and in, in earlier times in my life, play fast and loose with, with Sunday. 
play like, you know, it would be a lot easier if we got a head start on someplace we're going. Or, and, you know, if we left early Sunday morning and just didn't do church this time. Or, or you know, it, we, we, make, we make church very easily skippable. You know all the, the stuff about sports and that sports has crept into Sunday now and people miss, <clears throat> miss church all the time for sports, kids' sports or whatever things. But, but think about that. If you see that in your life, you may not, but if you see that in your life, think about that. Once again, I'm not getting on the case of anybody who has to work and it really is, uh, it interf- and their work is, interferes with the worship. I'm talking about people who just sort of easily miss worship just because it's just, you know, they just, uh, you know, they make an excuse. Well, I don't need to do it this week, or I can, I can miss it this time. Make it a priority. Make it like, like I, said, like I said in an email not too long ago, if you're out of town and you're at the beach and it's Sunday morning, you should be in church. We're commanded to be in church on Sunday morning. We're command, not Sunday morning, but we're commanded to be to worship on the Lord's day. You should find a church. You know, uh, if you're in, on Jekyll Island, go to the little Presbyterian church where there's 20 people gathered and worship the Lord. The sermon may not be the best sermon you ever heard. Um, then again, maybe it will be. Um, but those are God's people, and they're worshiping God. Join with them and worship God on the Lord's day. It's the Lord's day. Worship Him. Um, we're, com- we're as a church. That's what we're called to do. Um, okay, how much time do I have? I don't have any time. My last one is witness. I'll do it next week, I guess. So once again, my four were uh, learn, love, worship, and witness. Um, how can I improve? So just, I, didn't, I don't know if I did this for worship yet. How can I improve in worship? Can I make it more regular? Can I make it more important in my life? Not, not easily skippable, something that I, that, I, that I think is absolutely essential, that I only would miss for, you know, really genuine reasons that I must miss. Um, and, thinking of the evening service here, part of the reason that, that we started this evening service is because we thought, well, worship is so important to the church, let's increase the opportunities for worship. Instead of one, now we have two a week, two opportunities to worship. So, you know, consider increasing um, your worship. Um, uh, it, I'm not saying it's a command. There's no command that you must worship twice on the Lord's Day. That's not a command. But I'm saying we're commanded to worship on the Lord's day. And uh, one way that you could improve in worship is to increase it when you can, when, you have, when, you have, when it's possible for you to, to get out and, and do that. The fourth one was witness, and that comes from verse 47. Where, and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to spend the 10 minutes on it, so breathe easy. Uh, and the last sentence says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So clearly... There was some kind of witness going on for the Lord to be adding. I mean, the Lord was doing the work, but they were involved in it on some level that I wanted to discuss a little bit. But we don't have time to discuss it tonight, so we'll do that next week. 